Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Peter Loge. He leads the project on ethics in political communication and is an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. He has more than 25 years of experience in politics, including serving in the U.S. House, Senate, and Obama administration. His book, Political Communication Ethics, is due out in August. This episode is about what it means to communicate ethically and what kind of ethical communication we should expect and encourage in a democracy, especially from politicians who are in office or running for office at this time. We have an obligation to a democratic process. We have a system which is imperfect, which is founded on a series of lies, basically. You know, the man who wrote, all men are created equal, own slaves. But I think that the structure of our system is one that allows us to move towards more inclusion, more respect, more human dignity, more human rights, more civil rights. And I think we have an obligation as advocates to that process itself. We talk about America's long history of unethical political communication, making American civil religion the moral backbone of our body politic, and finding a way to make truth clickbait. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. At the project on ethics and political communication, you ask what are the ethical obligations of political communication professionals and to whom are these obligations owed? So what are those obligations? Uh, that's where we ask the question. <laughs> it's, it's not entirely clear. And I think this is an open conversation that all of us who work in politics have to wrestle with. Is there a larger ethical obligation? Are the stakes higher? Is there something more at play here? And if so, what is that? And do we have an obligation to that? And how do we meet that obligation while still doing the reality of winning the next campaign or getting the next bill passed or getting people to recycle or wash their hands or whatever it is we want them to do? Let's say I want to be in politics for the next 30 years. What's my obligation in terms of the ethical communication so that people understand who I am as a person, as a public servant? I think you have to answer that question yourself. You have to decide what's most important to you. Is it advancing the key two or three issues in which you believe no matter what? Or are you in this because you believe in a robust democratic debate and you think that people should be able to, to have access to the best information to make the best decisions, even if they're decisions with which you disagree? You know, if it's the former, if it's all about stopping climate change or mitigating the damage and really forestalling this existential threat, then I think all bets are off, right? You, you can exaggerate, potentially you can lie, work through legal loopholes in campaign finance and all of that to advance your ultimate goal. If you think that the democratic process matters more than any outcome that that process produces, then I think you need to set yourself up very differently. Then I think you need to be willing to lose, be willing to walk away from clients or ideas, and even be willing to leave it up to people with whom you might disagree or whom you don't entirely trust to make the best decision. Former Senator Claire McCaskill is an interesting case study in this. In 2012, she was an incumbent Democratic senator in Missouri, a pretty Republican state. And there were three Republicans running in the Republican primary that year, one of whom was then Congressman Todd Akin, who's pretty conservative, as were all of the challengers. Senator McCaskill ran ads during the Republican primary, 
basically attacking Aiken, saying that he was too conservative for Missouri. And she did this believing that those ads would encourage very conservative Republican voters to therefore vote for Aiken. And McCaskill very much wanted to face Aiken in a general election. So Senator McCaskill ran ads in a Republican primary in the hopes that those ads would help her get her preferred opponent. And they did. And then Senator McCaskill went on to beat then-Congressman Aiken in the election, in part because Aiken said something like, legitimate rape rarely results in, in pregnancy. So there, Senator McCaskill said, you know what, I just need to keep this seat. The values I believe in are so important, I really need to do whatever I can do to win, even if that means running a kind of underhanded or shady or ethically questionable series of campaign ads in a Republican primary. That's a great example because the trade-offs are obvious. You know, if you talk about it sort of in the abstract, it's less obvious. But so is it actually worth it, though? And why is it important for an effective democracy to communicate ethically? What's at stake? I think that we have an obligation to a democratic process. We have a system which is imperfect which is founded on a series of lies, basically. You know, the man who wrote, all men are created equal on slaves. But I think that the structure of our system is one that allows us to move towards more inclusion, more respect, more human dignity, more human rights, more civil rights. And I think we have an obligation as advocates to that process itself. I've spent a career in politics. And, and I got into politics because I believe in a set of democratic ideals, right? It's not to get rich or famous. Rather, it was a belief in a democratic system that allows robust debate and that believes that at some level through that robust debate, we will move more or less in a better direction into an uncertain future. And I think advocates have an obligation to what some have called the prophetic vision of American civil religion. It's, it's a humble notion that together we can sort of sort this out. It's President Lincoln saying, I pray not that God is on our side, but that we are on his. It's Langston Hughes' poem, Let America Be America Again, in which Hughes says, it was never America to me, uh, but it is an America that we really have to advocate for. For me, that is the obligation of an advocate. If, let's say, we want more people to believe what you believe, that American civil religion should be the moral backbone of our body politic, and it should inform the way that we communicate or that politicians communicate with the public. How can we get more of that in our public discourse? Because right now we are swimming in an era of alternative facts, obfuscation, outright lies. Like, how can we find a way? But in truth, we have been swimming in the soup for a long time. It's just more intense now. Well, I think the obvious answer to your question is more people need to listen to your podcast and more people need to follow things like the Project on Ethics and Political Communication. On the assumption that's not a cure-all, there are a couple of things we can do. But first of all, it's important to note, as you do, that, that it's not like American political discourse was happy and rosy and then suddenly somebody invented Twitter and Donald Trump came along and the wheels came off. We've always been an ethical hot mess. In the Adams-Jefferson race, the president of Yale University, who was an Adams supporter, said that if Jefferson were elected president, our wives and daughters would be subject to legal prostitution. Jefferson himself did not stoop to respond. He hired somebody to respond for him and placed stories in newspapers just making stuff up about Adams, including the claim that if Adams were elected president, he would invade France. It's not like we've ever been really good at this. That said, it does seem worse now. 
we have a president who just kind of makes stuff up. The secretary of state both endorsed and contradicted the U.S. intelligence apparatus view on where the coronavirus came from. I do think there are a couple of things we can be doing. Mayor Buttigieg had his rules for the road in the campaign, and he made it central to his campaign that they would behave in certain ways, acting with integrity, acting with respect, being inclusive, things like that. Vice President Biden has adopted them, and he is now promoting them. I think that one of the things that we need to do is demonstrate that one can run a hard-hitting, sharp-elbowed, in-your-face, the stakes are high, rough and tumble, sometimes in civil campaign, but still do it ethically, right? That one can play hard and play fair at the same time. So if we can demonstrate that those who behave well can also win, then I think we're going to see more people behaving well. Well, that's a pretty high bar, I think, in American politics. <laughs> so is there an example that you can point to? If not, then maybe a political campaign in history that you admire that you think is really meeting this bar. I think there are a lot of campaigns that have done that. And examples to which people routinely point, Senator McCain defending President Obama. At a campaign event, a woman stood up and started accusing President Obama um, of being un-American and unpatriotic. And Senator McCain interrupted and said, no, I have to tell you, he's an honorable man. He's a patriot. Um, I disagree with him, and I think I'd be a better president. But that's an incorrect interpretation. In 2000, at the presidential level, once again, one of the people helping prep then Vice President Gore for presidential debates, received a Republican debate prep briefing book. As soon as the Gore staffer realized what this was, he called the FBI, returned it, then took himself out of Gore's debate prep. He said, I just can't. This would just be really unfair. It's that kind of behavior. So we do see this. So how can we make those examples better seen? Because I think one of the reasons we don't embrace this is because we don't see it a lot. We say it so rarely. How can we encourage more of that? That's a really good and tough question. And if I had the absolute right answer, I would have done it by now. I put up the best tweet ever and then the world changes. I think that's how this goes with social media. I think there are a lot of things the press could do better, obviously, in covering campaigns. One of them would be raising these questions in articles. Is this appropriate behavior? Is this good or bad for democracy? Let's begin to highlight good behavior of mayoral candidates, city council candidates, state representative candidates. We tend to look at the presidential election because it's the biggest, it's the one we all have in common. But most of politics is not running for the White House. Most of politics are local elections, local referenda, town hall meetings, you know, local conversations about school funding, zoning rules, local transportation. And I think if the press highlights some of those, hey, here's a time when the mayor of this town went out of his way to praise a political opponent's character, even while disagreeing with the policy, I think you'd see more of that. This is one of the things that Edward Brookover in your book mentioned. The news media need to commit to running stories that return to the basics of news, who, what, when, and where, but also actually cover the campaign and the merits as to why one person should be elected or not, or at least being clear about the platform of each candidate. And they should. And, and that's always been the complaint, right? We've always wanted the press to be more substantive. And as voters, we say, why isn't the press being more substantive? And then we click on the clickbait. And then we don't reward the press. The press is operating under the same set of assumptions. 
you put out a tweet with a complicated analysis of the nuances of modeling COVID, nobody clicks on it. But if you put out a listicle with, you know, famous people who've recovered from COVID, you're getting clicks. You get paid by clicks. Part of it is on us as voters, as consumers, to pay for quality content, right? Read the garbage, read the gossip. I do. It's fun. But I pay for the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, donate to my local weekly newspaper in D.C. If we don't pay for content, we're not going to get good content. The other thing that, that reporters could do is stop the horse race coverage of campaigns. One of the problems of that is that we, as the viewer, as the reader of this news, are now spectators. I think the press could go a long way to writing compelling, good, interesting stories that encourage us to be participants in a democracy, not cheering for our team versus another team, but actually engaging in the debate itself, right? Being on the field, not just cheering for our favorite team. So how does that connect back to ethical communication if we want the American public to participate in the democratic process? What can a politician say and do to compel the public to participate and be interested in the things that this person is actually saying? When we see a clickbait story, it is It's like a reflex. We don't think about it. That's the whole point. We click on it because it looks funny. It looks interesting. There was a good photo. You know, the headline was catching. How can we actually compel everyday people to be invested in ethical communication? That's a tough question. I think there's an artificial distinction between being ethical and being clever. Uh, I was talking to a group of communications professionals about this, and one of them said the truth can be clickbait. It's not like the truth is boring and they're the vegetables and the clickbait is the, the endless ice cream sundae that we always want. But no, no, no. Now we have to have the truth. Okay, then I get to clickbait. Why can't it be both? Right. Sharp elbowed, clever politicians who make engagement, who make respect, who make civic involvement, civility, honesty and integrity, positive talking points. Or one can say, you know what, we're going to get the liberal base and we're going to get the middle who say, here's a set of shared American values. America is simply better than this. In times of crisis, Americans don't go to their foxhole and hide. Americans come together and rebuild things because that's who we are. And as an American, I may find that compelling. That to me is an ethical message. Yeah, for sure. Well, I like the idea of having clickbaity truth, if that's a way to say that, you know. Actually, one of the things uh, that you did in your essay in the book is you quoted Rorty, and you have to describe the country in terms of what you passionately hope it will become, as well as what you know it to be now. You have to be loyal to a dream country rather than to the one to which you wake up every morning. I thought that was so profound and so inspirational in a way that I think People are not communicating, though. Why are politicians not communicating in this way? If they were to do that, that is really speaking to my heart. And it's speaking to a higher ideal that I want in my life. And why can't we have that? I think over time we have had that. I think if you look at President Obama's speech on race in Philadelphia, that's an example of it. I think that activists in both parties that represent the minority of, of the party and the minority of the country, want to have a, an absolute purity test and, and they are unwilling to 
say that the story matters more than the facts almost, and that the story in itself matters. And we can recognize our nation's flaws and the flaws of our founders and still celebrate the dream that they had. And again, it comes back to Langston Hughes, let America be America again. Let's take the, the best of the ideal, the America that never was, making it the America that must be. One of the great essays in the 1619 Project was by a guy whose dad served in the U.S. military and thought that if he went into the military, then racism would be solved, right? Because he would prove he's a good American. As a black man, he's a good American and he would be embraced. And that didn't happen, obviously, and was still the victim of, of really heinous racism. And the author said at his house, the American flag flew every day and the American flag was always crisp and clean. Everything else could be sort of falling apart, you know, fraying at the seams. But the American flag was crisp. And the author said he never understood why, because America had done nothing but lie to his dad. But he realized it was because his father wasn't flying the flag for America that was. He's flying a flag for the America that could be. Yes, it's a myth. Yes, it's a lie. But we've got to move towards that. We've got to hang on to that because otherwise we get nothing. So let's go to the practical aspect of this. <laughs> What's the advice that you would give to a politician right in this moment, the moment of COVID-19, where we really don't know what's up and what's down. The data is being hidden or scientists are being muzzled. What can a politician effectively do in this environment to campaign, to get his or her message out, and to inspire people to say, okay, this democracy is worth it. I need to participate. I need to vote. I need to understand who's running on what. What's your advice? That's a great question. I think that in this moment, everybody running for office, everybody who holds office has an ethical obligation to promote fundamental core institutions that are necessary to our American democracy and on which we rely for getting better. I think everybody running for office should say things like, we need to follow the CDC guidance. We need to turn to the CDC and our scientists first. Science isn't about politics. We need to follow what the Food and Drug Administration says. We need to listen to the World Health Organization. We need to follow their lead. Because if we don't do that, if we question science at every turn, if we question experts at every turn, then the next time something bad happens, and it will, it'll be even worse because everybody will get to think their own science matters. And just because I'm not coughing in the moment, nobody's ever going to get COVID and this is the big lie. And then more than 100,000 people are going to die, more than a quarter of a million people are going to die. The second thing they should be promoting are things like the free press. They've got to stand up for a free, sometimes adversarial, sometimes irritating press. You could pick apart or attack individual columnists or opinion writers with whom you disagree. But the core of the news, right? Who did what to whom and when? What are the facts? From the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, mainstream media have to be supported. If we don't stand up for free, sometimes irritating, sometimes adversarial press, then again, we won't have a commonplace to have a conversation about politics. The press is not the enemy of the American people. The press is the ally of the American people. The press are a fundamental core tenet of our American democracy, and we have to stand up for it. Politicians and candidates have to defend it. You can be partisan, but you've got to stand up for these institutions. And I think they also need to be constantly reminding the American people that we're in this together and we're going to get through this together. America is at its best when we come together and say, we've got a specific problem. Let's find a way to solve this problem. 
together. And, and I'm staying inside and I'm, if I have to go to the grocery store, I'm wearing a mask because my neighbors need me to, not because I need me to. We need to hang in together as Americans, otherwise we're toast. And I think candidates and elected officials have an obligation to say that, and a lot of them are. I wish more of them would. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think as an aside that it would help the American public immensely if the president were to go on camera and wear a mask. It would send a very, very strong ethical message <laughs> that this is the right thing to do at this time. Yeah, they absolutely should. It was appalling to me. The vice president, Pence, didn't have a mask on. As he said, the president, Trump, didn't have a mask on. But you put it on to say, I'm in this with you, right? I mean, we look to our leaders. We want that moment for someone to say, this is how it's going to go. This is what I should do. We follow that. We all look to what are the social norms? What are we supposed to be doing? And then do that. You've got to model good behavior. The president isn't a bundle of policies. He's an ideal. He's an idea, an embodiment of, of who we want ourselves to be seen to be, both for ourselves as a country and in the eyes of the world. And if the president wears a mask, okay, we're all wearing masks. And he ought to wear a friggin' mask. Absolutely, you're right. Well, at least we agree, even if he doesn't, or they don't, rather. <laughs> right. But so I have two more questions. One is, you've been in this field for a while. Have you changed your mind at all about what it means to communicate ethically? And that's a good question. When I was 11, I dressed as a peanut for Halloween and trick-or-treated handing out Carter literature. So <laughs> I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> That's um, awesome. That's totally awesome. Mercifully, there are no pictures. So we're just going to have to roll with it was very cute, not at all weird. My core belief in the promise of democracy, I don't think is wavered in part, maybe because I've invested so much in it and I'm old enough now that I can't fully change my mind. The one thing that I have shifted on a fair amount is the idea of civility. I think we need more civility. People want to stop shouting as much. You can't govern in all caps. Let's just stop throwing rocks at each other all the time. Please be more civil. That said, not everybody has earned our respect and sometimes incivility is called for. And as an example of this, which is one to which a lot of people point, is Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail in which he argues that they tried civility, right? Sat down to the leaders of Birmingham. They thought they had a deal. The leaders of Birmingham went back on the deal and so they had to engage in civil disobedience, but disobedience nonetheless. So that level of civil action, of civil protest, I think could be necessary because it's in the service of a higher ideal. Uh, Dr. King refers to America's founding documents again, looking at a vision of American civil religion. And he also refers to scripture. And he says, you have to obey the higher ethical law, even if it isn't the law of the land at the moment. On um, that, I have come a ways, right? Sometimes you've got to go out and protest and shout and yell at each other. And, you know, if President Trump is lying to the American people, as he routinely does, that needs to be called out. And it's not terribly polite, but, you know, man has earned it, which is different than, you know, Senator Romney or Senator McCain, with whom I would disagree a lot. But I never doubt Senator Romney's motives. I don't think President Trump believes in anything beyond President Trump. And that is an incivil, rude thing to say. But, you know, there it is. 
as I've matured, that may be the distinction that I've come to appreciate more than I did when I was, you know, 20 and knew everything. Well, that was uh, very nuanced for sure. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think what makes me hopeful is that I have to be hopeful. It's a new day and, and I have to approach the day as if the day is going to be a better day. I'm hopeful because America does the right thing once all the other options have been exhausted. We are slowly moving in a good and a right direction. America is a dream worth pursuing and we continue to pursue that dream. And that, that makes me hopeful. The idea that Mayor Buttigieg got as far as he did, he's young, he was mayor of a small town, but he had a fundamentally hopeful, if cheesy sounding message that I bought hook, line and sinker. And that is we're better together than apart and we can respect each other and argue hammer and tong and find a way forward. My first job in the US Senate was for Senator Kennedy and Senator Kennedy believed so deeply in the US Senate and in the institution and in the power of democracy. And, and he and Senator Hatch were famously very close friends and would argue like mad on the Senate floor, but never once questioned each other's patriotism. Right, that makes me hopeful. And my students give me remarkable hope. I've got amazing undergraduates at George Washington University, Democrat and Republican, who work every day, intern every day in conservative and liberal organizations at the Republican National Committee, in the US Senate, on democratic campaigns, who believe in the promise of American politics and the promise of American democracy. That gives me tremendous, tremendous hope. Fantastic, well said. Thank you for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you very much for, for the conversation. You're doing terrific work. I'm not convinced that we have to choose between advocating for the issues that matter most to us and being committed to robust democratic debate. I think we can do both at the same time. When politicians speak in lofty, idealistic language of fulfilling the America that must be, it is perfectly feasible to present the public policies that can move us toward realizing that dream. In fact, my favorite part about our conversation here was about making truth clickbait. He's right that the truth is not boring. You just have to present it in a way that is compelling and makes us want to click on the article. We know it's possible. After all, America is the master of packaging. I'll venture out here to say that employing the truth sandwich will also make any headline more exciting. And most important, truthful and substantive reporting makes it possible for all of us to be active participants in a democracy instead of mere spectators. Stand up for truth. It matters. Next week, our guest is Nicole Hammer. She's a political historian specializing in media, conservatism, and the far right, and is the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. She's also an associate research scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. A lot of times when people think about media, they think of it just as sort of ephemera, right? Like what you hear on the air is the totality of what that media is. But behind the scenes, the people who were on these programs, who were publishing conservative books, 
they were activists. They were were grassroots activists who were heading up presidential campaigns, who were putting together organizations, who were doing the kinds of things that we see as traditional political activism. They just saw media as a really important part of that activism. We talk about the roots of conservative media activism and its long-ranging influence on the conservative movement overall, today's conservative vernacular, and the current iteration of conservative media. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.